Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Anti-Social Studies. If you've been wondering where I've been for the last few months, first, leave me alone. I've been really busy. Uh, but actually, no, don't leave me alone. I care about you a lot. But I have been really busy. You see, uh, last summer, a friend of mine, her name is also Emily. It's very confusing. We are both teachers, and we were on a trip to Peru with a bunch of teenagers. And as you do, we started talking about teaching. And we started realizing that we both had a lot of really good strategies that could be helpful to other teachers about teaching current events and teaching about the news. And so we decided that we would submit a proposal to South by Southwest, thinking this will be fun and no one will ever pick it. And then they picked it. So it's been really exciting, but also really terrifying to prepare our presentation for South by Southwest EDU, which is a huge educational conference in my hometown of Austin. And we are presenting tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, If you're listening to this, we've already presented. So my career has either skyrocketed or plummeted in the time between me recording this and you listening to this. So what we decided to do is we got together over the weekend and we went through our presentation and practiced it. And in doing that, we decided that it would be helpful to record it so that we could listen to ourselves and see how much we need to fix. So we figured that it sounded pretty decent and we thought that we would share it with anyone who was interested in listening to our presentation, at least the practice version. We will reference a few visuals that obviously you cannot see, but you can find them online at antisocialstudies.org. So if you are an educator, if you're a teacher, if you're someone just interested in education or what we do, uh, this is our workshop on teaching in the era of fake news. We will go over media literacy, using the news in your classroom, addressing fake news, and also just a lot of lesson ideas and activity ideas for how to incorporate current events into any classroom, not just social studies. We even have ideas for math and science. If you are not an educator or this just does not sound very interesting to you, please, I promise I will not be offended if you skip this episode. I very soon will be coming out with my next regularly scheduled episode on North Korea, so you can just skip and enjoy Kim Jong-un. But for those of you who are interested, please enjoy our workshop, at least our practice for our workshop on teaching in the era of fake news. Thanks. We're doing it. Okay, so everyone will come in and we'll say hello. Welcome to our session teaching in the era of fake news. I'm Emily Glinkler. And I'm Emily Poole. Woohoo! Um, so just to tell you a little bit about ourselves, um, we used to teach together here in Austin. Um, so that was at a large public school here in Austin. I've also taught at a few different private schools. So I'm currently at the Griffin School, which is a very small uh, high school, private high school. I've also taught at a small uh, religious private school as well, all in Austin. And I currently teach in Denver, Colorado, and I teach at a school that has 3,800 students and is too large. Yeah. (laughs) So we've kind of taught across the spectrum. Um, The reason why we wanted to make this session is that uh, we were traveling with kids to Peru, not humble (laughs) brag, um, and we started brainstorming and talking about some of the things that we thought we did well as teachers. And one of the things that we realized was we really love talking about current events in our classrooms. And so we started brainstorming the things that we do. And I think that we both had this experience where uh, when we went off to other schools where we were not working together, we started to realize that what we had thought made a lot of sense. A lot of teachers were 
felt really uncomfortable talking about current events in their classroom. Yes. And so we decided that we wanted to make this presentation so that we could share just some of the strategies that we've used to talk about the news, to analyze uh, media sources, and to kind of talk about current events in our class. Yeah, and I think they've been successful. I feel like our students usually walk away from our classroom feeling confident and like, Hmm, what's the word I'm trying to say here? I'm already getting nervous, Emily. Uh, they like feel really comfortable talking about current events and they feel really smart around their friends or around their parents because they yeah. know what's happening. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed, um, and uh, for both of us, but especially like <clears throat> Emily created, like you kind of did a current events club at the school <laughs> we were at, it started to become cool to know the news. And that was a really cool thing that I saw that over the four years that we were both teaching together, um, we sort of developed this culture where the sophomores that we taught like wanted to be the one who had listened to the news that morning and knew what was going on. And that's when we kind of realized that we were doing something that to us just seemed natural. We both love talking about current events, mm -hmm. but um, we decided we wanted to encourage more teachers to do that. So we're glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome. Yay. So the big question is, why does this matter? Why is it important to talk about the news and to teach about current events in the classroom? So. Yeah, so anxiety in young people increased by 20% between 2007 and 2012. Um, and as teachers, I'm sure that you are very aware of that and you kind of see the direction that our teenagers' mental health is going. And I think that part of the thing that has contributed to the rise of that is that the world is chaos and we know that the world is chaos because we watch the news and the news is just terrible a lot of the time and it <laughs> makes us as adults anxious. So it makes us anxious. It definitely is going to cause anxiety in our students. And I think that this is... Like, rather than just ignoring it or saying that we can't talk about news in the classroom, like, we should be bringing that into the classroom so that students know how to process through these thoughts and emotions that they get when they're confronted with polarizing subjects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, especially as social studies teachers, we probably should have mentioned this on the first <clears throat> the first slide, that we both have taught mostly history classes. Yep. Um, you know, I will be the first to admit that kids don't need to know every Chinese dynasty in order to be successful. Even though we can sing the song. Even though we can sing the song and we really love that. But what they do need is they need to be able to pull up the internet and not be totally overwhelmed. And so that's one, this is one way, one way that we can help this, so. Um, the second reason why this is important is that, as we all know, Americans over time are just finding less common ground with each other. I think I read somewhere that Americans are more polarized than we have been since the on, out, onset of the Civil War, which is kind of scary. And to me, the part that's really startling about this is that this statement says, are finding less common ground with each other. So it's not just that we're disagreeing on really polarizing issues. We're also just disagreeing on what used to be relatively mundane things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just we're, we're developing this culture where we just see the other side as wrong 100% of the time. And that that's problematic, right? Yes. Yeah, number three, another reason why we want to do this is that communication and collaboration are the top skills that employers desire in job candidates. Um, they don't, like Emily was talking about earlier, care about if you know like what year the Battle of Hastings was, but they care if you can work with partners and in groups. And we always say in our classrooms, or students always ask in our classrooms like why they have to do group projects because they don't like working with the certain people in their projects. But as Emily likes to say, life is a group project mm -hmm. because you are always going to be in situations where you work with people who disagree with you or have different perspectives. Um, and being able to communicate with those people and work with those people and come to compromises with people who are different than you is so important for the real world. Yeah. 
And this is an area where we can, current events is the best way to practice this. So um, the last one is just that the majority of young professionals cannot detect fake news. I think that we all think that we're better than we really are. We all assume that we're not the one the news sources are talking about, about, <laughs> about people like perpetuating fake news, but we are to some extent. And so as much as we can introduce that, and I will say from the very beginning, like this session is not about how to teach kids how to detect fake news. There are a lot of sources that we'll give you that are doing that really well. But our, our proposal is basically that the more you can bring in news, real and fake, to your classroom, mm -hmm. um, the better equipped they're going to be later on. So Definitely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, this matters. Um, we think that empathy and communication are so important for our students' success in the future and just for raising up this next generation of people who will one, one day run the United States, which is terrifying to think about now. But this is a big deal, and we want to teach uh, effective communication, collaboration, and ways to understand media literacy. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so the question is, how can schools address this? And our idea is that there's really three points here. So one is we need to rethink media literacy, which we'll talk about first. The second is that we need to evaluate biased and fake news as valuable sources of information. This, to me, I think is the biggest shift that teachers need to make. And three is we need to normalize current events in our classroom, bring them in more than we are right now. Uh, so the first is rethinking media literacy, which media literacy just basically means the ability to access and critically evaluate media. For our purposes, that's mostly going to be what we would call news media, right? Um, and so if you think about it, Emily and I both have this experience where we've asked students to come in and bring in an article and talk about current <laughs> events, and we'll ask them to like evaluate the source, and inevitably they always just say, this source had bias, and then full stop. It's Fox News. It's, it's conservative. Right. It's CNN. It's liberal. It was biased. And then they move on. <laughs> and what we're realizing is that that's a failure, right? Because bias is a thing that just naturally occurs. Bias is now, I think, such a loaded word that it kind of means nothing at this point. Saying that something is biased is really meaningless, at least to me as a teacher. And so we need to rethink how we approach that word. And I'm actually going to argue we need to just stop using that word, but we'll get there in a second. Yeah, because I think that a lot of people associate bias with being wrong no matter what it is. Like, it just has a very negative connotation. Mm -hmm. So if we stop using that word, I think we'll uh, progress a little bit as a society. Yeah. So um, I want us to all think about for a second, when you were in school, there's really kind of two parts to this question. The first part is, did you learn how to evaluate news sources? If not, then already we have an issue. But if you did learn how to evaluate news sources, we want you to think about how did you learn? Like, what activities did you do to figure out if a news source was, quote, reliable or not? So, like, Emily, what did you do when you were in school to evaluate the news? Did you do anything? Oh, no, we didn't. We would watch uh, this TV show at the beginning of every morning when I was in middle school. It was called, I don't even remember. But they would talk about the news for, like, five minutes, and then we'd be done. Was it the little, like, PBS News Hour? No. Oh, with, it was... Uh, Hacienda? The Hacienda? Oh, that means nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember I, I had some good teacher, socialist teachers and English teachers in high school that would do this, and but it, it was kind of like what you already brought up. It was, okay, pick, a, pick an event, so it might be the government shutdown or whatever, and then it would be, now go to Fox News, see what they say, go to CNN, see what they say, go to BBC, see what they say. And I would say, Fox News supported Trump, and CNN didn't, and BBC just kind of 
wondered what Americans were doing, right? Um, and then that was it. And we just moved on. And I didn't really learn much from that. And I and I really just, if I was already liberally inclined, I just went, okay, I guess I should read CNN and I guess I shouldn't trust Fox News. Mm. And that wasn't really very helpful in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've done in the past is we've, you know, we're looking at, um, you can't see it if you're listening to this, but um, you can see it on my website. We're looking at this sort of graph that went around mm. the internet about like how to evaluate news sources. And it's basically showing like, mainstream media that is relatively safe that's like you know the associated press pbs that sort of thing and then as they get further and further to the extremes they go down in reliability so on the far right we have like info wars on the far left we have something called patriotics which i've never heard of before probably for a good reason so the idea is teachers in the past have basically said that you should not stray from what we would consider mainstream media. And it can be rel- it can be sort of liberally, liberally skewed or sort of conservatively skewed, but if it goes too far um, and if it's more based on emotions than facts or if it's clearly just trying to persuade an audience and not try to inform, then we as teachers have just said, okay, well, we can't use those in the classroom and we, we need to kind of eliminate those from our set of, of resources. Um, And so this is where I would argue that schools have been part of the problem, right? Because teachers used to be able to do that. So when we would just take kids down to a, I say this like I did this as a teacher, I did it. When I as a student would go down to the library and the librarian would have brought out sources on the topic I was researching, well, that was really easy to say, here are the reliable ones because I couldn't then go home and Google it. Um, And so that used to make sense to say, you wanna stick with fact-based, well-researched stuff but now we don't we don't have that control anymore. The kids are going home and they're still seeing the garbage. But what we're doing is we're just shutting it out of our classrooms. So we're saying, well, you can't cite that in a, a research paper, for example, right? Or you can't use Wikipedia in a research paper. You can't cite Infowars or whatever the case may be. And that's fine. And on, on paper, that is the right thing that teachers should be doing. But it's not helping the situation because it's not meaning that kids are going and now just not looking at Infowars. They're still looking at it. They just now have no way to process it in like a safe space. Yeah, don't get us wrong here. Students should still be kind of looking at reliable, should definitely be looking at reliable sources whenever they do their research but because the internet is in their pockets right now Mm -hmm. they're going to be forced to see all of these other different uh, unreliable or fake news sources and we just need to address it because they're not going to address it anywhere else right yeah so if we just tell them to completely reject everything that we would consider not a reliable news source then all we're doing is leaving it basically leaving them like alone in the wilderness to figure this out so Oh, so that's me. So what's the problem with this? Um, So the problem is that, like, we know that teenage brains are already, like, inclined to resent authority. Like, we know that developmentally that is a normal thing, that they are angry at their parents or their teachers or whoever is making them do things that they don't want to do. And so they're already, they've always been inclined to reject traditional authority figures. So that might be teachers or parents or traditional sources of information. They've, they're have they already inclined to not really care so much what the news guy on TV has to say. Um, and that's always been the case, but some things have changed in the last like 18 years that are making this even harder. So the first is that the internet provides them with air quotes here, proof of whatever viewpoint they're trying to assert. So they can go to any corner of the internet and find something that at least on the page is going to be evidence, big air quotes there for whatever they want to believe. And social media (laughs) um, creates an echo chamber that confirms this viewpoint. So they're surrounding themselves on the internet with like-minded people who are just gonna kind of like escalate this to where they're now seeing it quote unquote confirmed in all of these other places as well. And finally, 
Am I doing all of these? I guess so. I guess so. We should change that. This is a lot of me talking. Um, and finally, like, unfortunately, right, the, a, a lot of politicians really on both sides, but especially President Trump has legitimized this. So he specifically campaigned on rejecting traditional authority figures. So rejecting traditional authority figures in Congress during the swamp, right? And also rejecting historically trusted sources of information, fake news. And so what they're seeing is on every level from their friends to the people they follow on the internet, all the way up to the leader of the free world, they're now getting that like teenage brain confirmed that it's okay to now reject these traditional sources of authority so when you the teacher in the classroom saying don't trust this news source it's unreliable like you're correct but they're not listening to you anymore mm-hmm. right so yes so uh, outdated media literacy strategies or for me who just really didn't ever learn any media literacy strategy when i was in high school um and the general lack of current events that teachers bring into the classroom make it really challenging for students to try to navigate this very uh, tumultuous political world on their own at home um so what we need to do as teachers is bring current events into the classroom teach them how to teach them proper media literacy and then hopefully equip them so when they have exited our class or even high school and when they go into the real world they'll understand how to navigate mm-hmm. the climate at least a little bit better right no one's ever going to know how to do it completely i don't but at least better than than they are right now definitely so, so- so <laughs> we need a paradigm shift. Um, so we need to be able to teach proper media li- literacy, especially in this era of fake news, where a lot of times, honestly, students don't know if something is real or fake until someone tells them that. Um, so we need to, or we want to do this through two ways. We need to teach kids the value of bias. And like I mentioned earlier, we just need to bring current events into the classroom. Our classroom needs to be the place where students can feel comfortable discussing what they see on TV or see on Snapchat. And we need to bring all of that into our classroom. Okay, so what do we mean when we say, when we say, we say, say, teach? Because like Emily brought up before, bias has a very negative connotation at this point. Um, and bias is seen something. as something that is inherently bad. Um, but, but it's really just like a human nature thing. Um, so what this means is that, like every human being on the planet has bias. So anything created by humans has bias. So we can't escape it. And so we need to really shift the way teachers and students view bias. Um, And so first, we want to just look at, like, how do we kind of persuade people to see the world from our eyes, right? So we have this short video um, that I won't play right now, but it'll be up on my website um, that kind of talks about essentially, like, how we grew up, how we, like, evolved over time as humans in this kind of tribalistic way of living. And so our brains are programmed to survive. Our brains are not programmed to like process factual information, right? That's secondary to survival. And so when someone is coming at you with facts, but those facts contradict like your worldview, you don't care about the facts. You're like, your brain responds as if it's being physically threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you respond and it's the point that the video makes that I really like is that it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're already part of a group or a tribe it doesn't make sense to go against that tribe and say, actually, I think what we're saying is wrong because then you isolate yourself. And in the world of like evolution, that is a dangerous thing as Mm -hmm. animals to be isolated. Um, And so the idea is we need to see bias as the opportunity to learn about other people and see the world through their eyes so that we can make them part of our quote unquote tribe, right? We're not gonna like have any progress in any sort of conversations about current events until we first get them to see us as not a threat. And bias then is the really valuable information that we can gain to figure out like, how are they seeing the world? How are they coming to this conversation? And how can I connect with them on their level, right? Yeah. 
Is it too much to ask for us to all just be one tribe? Yeah. <laughs> just can we all just be the human, the human tribe? tribe against? We'll pick another animal that we can all be against. We'll be the human tribe against reptiles. I'm fine there with we go. that. Yep. Okay. Don't like alligators. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is you. So, um, for example, what Emily and I both advocate is that we stop using this word bias and that we start using the word perspective. So Fox News doesn't have a conservative bias. It shows us the conservative perspective. And where students might just immediately shut, liberal students might just immediately shut down Fox News as being terrible and wrong. Um, actually, what they should be doing is watching it so that they understand what the other side thinks, right? Mm-hmm. So we've just talked about the world is kind of divided divided into these two tribes right now. You can definitely see that in our current political climate. But we are really like to stay in our tribe and like not understand what the other side thinks. Mm-hmm. But if you watch Fox News and you under, if you're watching kind of as like a research of, oh, this is what conservative people believe and this is why they believe it, um, that's going to start to bridge that gap between the tribes and start to promote more empathy. Mm-hmm. So these two news articles right here, um, one's from Fox News and one's from CNN. Uh, Fox News calls, uh, what was this in the context of, the, the caravan? Um, no, this is, the, I think, in the context of, the first one's in the context of the Dreamers, like DACA. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Fox News is calling people illegals, and CNN is calling people migrants. Mm-hmm. And they're both correct. They are illegal migrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just choosing to camp out on specific words to uh, ignite their base. Mm-hmm. So what else am I supposed to say here? Well, I think, I think <laughs> that the idea is that, like you said before, I think all it is is, like, that we need to look at news sources and just accept that they're going to have bias because they always will, but instead see it as, okay, we're gathering as many perspectives on this topic as possible. Yes. So, like, if, if I am conservative, it could be useful for me to watch CNN and gather those other perspectives. Just because I'm watching it doesn't mean I have to agree with it, but if I understand that, like, if we're going into a conversation on immigration and one person sees them as illegal people and the people who are here by definition and they broke the law, well, that that already helps me understand how they're viewing this issue differently from someone else who views them as migrants who are seeking asylum or coming here for a better life. And so if I understand, for example, that the person I'm talking to sees them as e- people who are here because they've broken the law, I can like go to their level and connect with them on that level and say, like, I understand this idea that, like, yeah, just by being here, they have technically broken a law by coming in illegally, you know, however, should we look at maybe I could present them with statistics about like crime by immigrants, which is actually lower than crime by people who like if I understand that that's their biggest concern is like safety and security, then I now have more information about how I can like connect with them. Yeah. And again, that goes back to this idea of finding common ground. Mm-hmm. If you want to establish you see their perspective and you can at least that's a, like a good starting point for you then to have a productive discussion rather than them just shutting down if you come at them with facts or something. Yeah. And saying like if, if that person sees them as illegal, you can connect with them and say like, hey, I get it. Like that does feel unfair. Right. That, that, that I know that there are people that I know that had to wait years before they could get into the country. And I totally understand that that seems unfair that they seem to have gotten around the system However, they're here, so how can we maybe address them now that they're already here, right? You're you're showing them, you're giving them a little bit of a nod to, like, you're right in this one way, that, like, that must be frustrating. You're showing them that, like, you understand how they're feeling, but let's move past that and talk about what can we do now, right? Yes. Anyway. Um, so uh, we have an activity where um, this is like a really quick thing that you can do in your classroom is just analyzing headlines. Um, and so uh, we'll have people kind of discuss these two headlines. So one just it's they're both about the government shutdown. One says Trump last week. I'll own the shutdown. Trump now it's the Democrats fault. And the subtitle is Trump is already flip flopping on who owns a government shutdown. 
And then the other news source says, enough with government shutdowns, Washington, wake up. When will our leaders learn that we want compromise? So the idea is, um, and I've intentionally left off the sources. I've intentionally left off what news source these are from because I've noticed that when I put them up there, kids just immediately jump to conclusions. And if you remove the, the news source at the beginning, um, it opens kids up to discuss these more. So I guess the conversation would be, um, and I can ask you this, Emily, like, what do you think about these two headlines? Do they seem like they have key differences on how they're viewing the shutdown? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are um, they? Yeah, so I think the first one, right, is like Trump is saying it's the Democrats' fault. So then all of Trump supporters are going to be like, may I blame the Democrats for everything that mm -hmm. is wrong, That the fact that the government shut down. Um, and then the, the bottom one is saying, hey, we need to learn to compromise because it says, when will our leaders learn that we want compromise? So it's kind of like uniting all of the people who are frustrated with everything that's happening in Washington right now mm -hmm. because we empathize with that and we're like, yes, compromise. Yeah, like it seems like the first headline is specifically putting the blame on Trump. It's saying like, well, Trump's flip-flopping and Trump said it was his shutdown. Now he's saying it's not. Um, the second headline doesn't even name anyone. It just says Washington, wake up. So this is more like a general frustration at the lack of compromise in Washington. So if you were inclined to like pick one of these that you were like, oh, this is interesting. I want to read more. Which one would you be interested in reading more? I personally would probably actually want to read the bottom one more, even though it sounds like a little more active or a little more like strong-willed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah compromise. I like the bottom one too. I think that the bottom one is a little bit more of like a human approach of saying like, it's not going to be productive to blame, to keep blaming people. Um, we need to wake up. And that's interesting. And I think a lot of students, at least at my school, would find this interesting because the bottom one is from Fox News. Right. And so the top one is from Vox, which is a pretty liberal source. And the bottom one is from Fox News. But the point is that if you can first just get kids talking about what they see without giving them the labels of like, well, this came from Fox News. And then your liberal kids immediately say, well, I'm going to hate whatever's in this article. I think that they'll find that they might actually find some common ground a little yes, bit more easily. Absolutely. Right? Cool. OK, so you might be asking that's all fine, but like, what about news that is actually fake? Is actually not true. Oh, so bad. And that's where it gets a little exhausting. We're not gonna have time to do this, but just a little shout out to this game. I have nothing to do with this. I wish I did. Um, there's a game if you go to getbadnews.com. Um, it's a game that's made. I think it's by someone in Scandinavia, because of course they're of doing course. everything better. Yes. Um, but it's like a whole fake news game, and you play it, and you basically try to get as many followers as possible by just tweeting whatever you feel like tweeting. And it's really interactive and really fascinating to see how it's so much easier to get more attention by tweeting really divisive and often false things than by being like a a, a good digital citizen. Yes. So highly recommend you checking that out. Getbadnews.com. So the trick with fake news, and this is where I think it's maybe going to be the biggest shift from what teachers have done in the past, is that um, we actually need to bring fake news into our classrooms. Um, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So there have been a lot of studies. Um, this one is from, I think, Cambridge, the, psych the psychology department, that basically found that fake news acts like a virus. Like it multiplies, it spreads the way a virus spreads. Um, and so, right, my kind of proposal is that if we treat fake news like a virus, then we need to be the ones that are inoculating our kids against fake news. And so you do that by exposing them to fake news in small doses in a controlled environment, which is our classrooms, right? Our classrooms are perfectly designed to teach this skill because in theory, right, if you're doing it right, our classroom should be a safe environment where kids feel comfortable, they trust you, just like you would 
probably hopefully in a doctor's office. Hopefully mm-hmm. you trust your doctor. Um, and so this is an opportunity to, in fact, like bring fake news inside of our walls and teach kids how to address it. Yeah, and this is a big ask for teachers. We understand that this is probably going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of people who are listening. But mm-hmm. students need to learn it somewhere, and they need to learn it before they go out into the real world. Right. So we need to dive into the discomfort. Yeah. And, and the, the thing to point out is that we're – we want it, We will make it very clear, I always make it very clear in my classroom, that something is fake or is factually incorrect. I do not shy away from that. If if we're looking in our, at an article that says, um, I don't know, what's something like, do vaccines cause autism? I very clearly say, all the science shows that they do not, right? I present them with those facts and I say, but still, let's look at this. Why are people still believing this? Where mm-hmm. is that coming from? So I'm not at all saying that we need to legitimize fake news. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying we need to introduce it to them in a way that they can kind of understand it in a safe environment. We're not removing all facts. Facts are still like supreme in my classroom. Um, and, and I don't put fake news on the same level as a true legitimate source, right? So... Um, so the question is, um, why are we so nervous to introduce students to like divisive fake news? And on the one hand, I totally get it. I am sort of nervous about it too, but really, especially as history teachers, right? Like we introduce students to really divisive stuff all the time. Like as a U.S. history teacher, I mean, there's a few centuries where like almost everything we do is really problematic, right? I mean, we look at political cartoons that are super racist about immigrants or about other groups from the 1800s or even 1900s and kids get it. Like kids look at it and they understand that that is not the truth, that that is one person's view of the way the world is. And that is one person showing their viewpoint or their frustration or whatever. So my argument is that we just need to teach fake news the same way. Teach fake news the way we would teach a racist political cartoon from the 1800s, right? We introduce it to them in a responsible way and we teach them to analyze it just like we would ask them to analyze any other historical document. So um, we're going to do a practice, not for you listeners, but uh, we're going to do a practice with the very famous Alex Jones rant about uh, the drinking water turning frogs gay. Hey, Emily, do you want to know a fun fact? Yes. Do you know that Alex Jones graduated mm. from the high school that we taught at? I did know that. Oh, yeah. And I think all the time about, um, as the, I taught contemporary issues at that high school, I think about all the time, what if he'd been in my classroom? Like, what that would have been like. To have, I wonder two things. One, I either would have had to quit teaching, or two, I could have changed, changed Alex him. Jones. Like if he had been in my classroom, maybe and had contemporary issues with me, maybe he wouldn't have turned into this like ranting revolutionary, right? Wait, yep, angry and divisive uh, figure. Yeah, but so the idea is, if we get kids to analyze this document just like we would any other historic document, or like um, a short story from English or whatever, right? Analyze it the way we would any other source. Um, for example, we'll see like this rant was in 2015 and it goes, it's, it's a lot about how we should mistrust the government because essentially he argues that the government has been testing quote unquote gay Gay bombs, bombs. gay bombs. They've already tested them on soldiers, um, in the hopes that they could bomb, I guess, an enemy, enemy troops and it would turn the enemy troops gay and they would stop fighting us. Because they would be making love. They would be making love to each other. So that's his big argument. Um, and I and I would be very clear to my students that that is, as far as I know, factually inaccurate. Yep. Um, but then he argues, well, they're already doing it. They're already testing it on us. And he talks about like how they're putting things in our drinking water that have already been proven to turn frogs gay. Yes. So we would watch this clip um, and be horrified, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then we would analyze it, right? So the way that we in world history have always had our students analyze things is we say you got to hip it. 
Um, so you talk about the historical context, the intended audience, the purpose, and the point of view. Um, so what we get people to talk about is that the historical context is, is that this video came out just a few months after same-sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court. So that's going to inform why maybe he's he's talking specifically about this issue of quote unquote turning people gay um, and the government being involved in that. Right? He's he's probably feeling if maybe frustrated or threatened by the fact that the Supreme Court has upheld the same-sex marriage, and so he sees this sort of government conspiracy um, that he, that they just want everyone to be gay. I don't know. <laughs> Um, the intended audience, I mean, the people watching him, I think in the video he even specifically says the family's watching this. Like, he wants as large of an audience as possible, and he knows that the people that are going to his website are people that are seeking him out, people that already are inclined to mistrust traditional news sources, um, and so he speaks directly to them. He's not speaking to um, relative, like more, I guess, rational people that seek out like BBC News or even Fox News or CNN. Like he's he's on the internet and he is specifically marketing himself for people who are anti all of those things. Yeah, and in this video, he actually talks about uh, mistrusting other news sources and that what he like they are hiding things from us that he is then exposing. Right, and that leads us into his purpose. Right, the the other thing we're supposed to do, his purpose is to two things, get money and get viewers, which are one and the same sort of, right? I mean, he's a business. That's what a lot of students don't understand is that anyone that's online, YouTubers, that's a business. They're trying to get clicks. They're trying to get likes. And so they're saying things that are going to appeal to their audience and that are going to get people engaged. And engaged could be positive or negative. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is, is that he is trying to appeal to his audience, but also he knows that even if the people watching it hate what he's saying and think it's crazy, the way the internet works now, it's still going to go viral and it's still going to get a ton of clicks. And that's going to make him that's going to bring traffic back to his website. Also, his website has a big store where it sells like survival gear. So it, se it sells tablets you can put in your water to protect you against this so-called gay bomb, right? Uh, I checked out his website after we had this conversation uh, last week. Mm -hmm. And my favorite thing that he sells, just for funsies, mm -hmm. is called uh, Wake Up America Patriot Blend Coffee. Hmm. Yeah. So the, he's a business, right? I mean, he's not a truth teller. He's a business person. And he's frankly like a really good business person. He's very successful. Um, and so his point of view is really like whatever he thinks is going to get him the most clicks. Mm -hmm. Emily and I were talking about this before is like, do we think he actually believes all this stuff? And like, my answer is it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a public pers person, I mean, people ask this all the time, like, does Trump really believe what he's saying? I don't know that it matters, right? I mean, I think that they're just saying like whatever they know they need to say to incite their base and get support, right? Yes. Um, and so if we can analyze a document like this academically, now mm -hmm. we break it down and we've equipped kids with some tools where now any, it's not just Alex Jones, right? The point of this lesson is not to teach kids to not trust Alex Jones. It's that now every time they watch a video online, they might be a little more savvy about thinking about, okay, well, this YouTuber I really like, who's reviewing this makeup I love. Like, well, are they maybe getting paid by the makeup brand to tell me they love it? And the answer is yes, they are, right? Or, and that might be really obvious to us as adults, but I don't think it's obvious to 14-year-old no, and 15-year-old kids. Because that's the advertising they've grown up with. We remember like old school advertising and we know now that it's gone away. People aren't watching commercials anymore. So it makes sense to us. It's like, where is it gone? It's gone on social media. But even if it's not the news, right, kids need to understand that when they're watching and they see that their favorite celebrity is like posting about a brand of coffee they love, like that that's probably a sponsored post. And they probably were sent that coffee and probably also given money to say how much they love it, right? Yeah. So our kind of big takeaway here is that we're already teaching kids how to analyze documents in classroom, especially in world history class. Mm -hmm. So we might as well just use those exact same tools to teach them how to analyze fake news. Yeah. So they it, can better navigate through this climate. Yeah. It, we Teachers are really good at reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. We like to create new tools for everything. We don't need to. Just no. 
the way you're having them analyze sources in your classroom, do the same thing, but with the news. Um, so we will share online some other resources for how to actually identify fake news. There are a lot of resources and um, websites that are doing this way better than us. So you can check out antisocialstudies.org if you're interested in some of those sources. Yeah, and uh, our last step or our last desire for this is that we really need to normalize current events in our classroom. And that just means we need to start bringing in the chaos that is 2019 <laughs> um, into a safe, controlled environment where we can discuss it and talk about it with our students. Mm -hmm. um, perfect. I'm checking the time. I'm going to cut this part out, but I was just curious. We are, because didn't we say like 30? We said 30 or 45 minutes, so that's great. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, okay, so how do we do this? Well, uh, my biggest step is that we need to get rid of classroom debates. Yes. Now, I used to love classroom debates, so I will be the first to admit that this was my strategy in the past, but I think that in the world that we live in now, it is no longer productive because you are just saying one side is right and one side is wrong. Um, so rather than having debate, I encourage productive discussions and our goal is to promote understanding from the other side not to win because I feel like if you even just say the word debate one side will want to beat the other side and that's not the point mm -hmm. that is kind of the world that are that is the uh that's that, the that's, go ahead. that's the world we're in right now yes there we go right I mean that's what politicians are doing that's yep. what people in the news are doing so. yeah so rather than perpetuating that and continuing future generations of that if we just have productive discussions where it's okay to be right and wrong mm -hmm. i think that that will be helpful in the future um you also only have the right to an opinion if you have evidence or experience not everyone is entitled to their opinion mm -hmm. i'm sorry that's a big thing that students have a hard time with but then i've actually found has been very positive is that and we don't mean this in a in a negative like we're punishing kids kind of way like you you're too young you don't have the right to your opinion no of course not what we're saying is um, that you really should only be voicing your opinion if you have evidence or some sort of experience to back up that viewpoint. And if you don't have those things, then you still have a job and your job is to listen and ask questions. That this is now your opportunity to gain evidence or experience. So if I'm walking into a classroom discussion about transgender people and I go, oh, I don't really know much about transgender people and I'm not transgender, then my job is to sit there and listen and ask questions from people who do have evidence or experiences. And then I can walk away maybe forming my own perspective or my own opinion based on that. Yes. Right. And what I found as a teacher is that this is really liberating for students. This is a huge relief for students who feel like they have to have a stance on everything. And I know as an adult, I feel that way. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting to feel like you have to take a stance on every single thing that comes across your newsfeed. And what we're telling kids is you don't. It's actually OK to go. I actually don't know. And just sit there and listen. Absolutely. And it's surprising how many kids love that. Right? Yes. Um, so. Yeah, and the last thing after at the very end of the discussion, um, students should assess their performance. So they need to think, man, how did I do when I participated in this? Did I talk too much? Did I not talk enough? Did I ask too many questions? Mm -hmm. And I think that that, again, is so important because you don't want to be the one dominating conversation because if you are just dominating the conversation or if you are just waiting to speak rather than actually listening, mm -hmm. um, you aren't going to get anything out of it. And you have also hurt the other people in the classroom who are still having that or who are trying to have that discussion. Yeah, I think that the point here, and this is a big epiphany I had like a year ago. I had this introduced to me by another teacher and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't been doing that. Is, is 
once you finish some sort of discussion, step back and assess the discussion itself because this is promoting that buzzword we all love, growth mindset, mm-hmm. right? This idea that there are students who are just like, well, I just don't know much about the news and so I don't really want to talk at all. Or I get nervous talking to, in front of my friends about stuff like this. Or um, I just feel super passionate and I'm super liberal and I just want everyone to know. Like, that's fine if students understand where they're starting from, but we need to be promoting that you can get better at this, that this is a skill just like anything else. So understanding the news is a skill just like math. And so if we assess their performance after the discussion, right, I typically have my students at the beginning of our first discussion write down on, an, on a post-it, here's the way I typically operate during a class discussion, and here's one thing I want to improve. And then they have that out on their desk every time we have a class discussion. And so it's something I can see, and I can say, hey, you noted at the beginning of the year that you really want to work on letting more people talk, so why don't we practice that today? And that's a really nice way to tell a kid to shut up. That is a really smart idea. (laughs) And I want to take that into my classroom. Yeah. So it's like, then you can see it's a, or if you have a kid that says, I want to work on talking more, it's a really good way to say it's like, it's their own words. You can say, Hey, do you want to share your opinion at some point? I'm going to, I'm going to call on you at some point today when you feel comfortable. So raise your hand when you feel comfortable and I'm going to help you practice and achieve that goal you've set for yourself. Right. So that is a way that we can also facilitate these discussions. It's room for growth. Right. Yeah, so the second thing, another step to normalizing current events and uh, talking about discussion is that we want to practice perspective taking. Um, So kind of before you even have any kind of discussion in the classroom, what you want to do is brainstorm on the board or on your smart board or on your chalkboard and say, uh, what are all the things you've heard about this topic, regardless of whether you believe them or not? Um, And this is really important too. They're not sharing their opinion. They're just sharing things that they know about the topic at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just kind of getting the gears turning and gathering background information before we actually have this discussion. And as teachers, that gives us a really good starting point Mm -hmm. of saying, okay, so based on this information that we've just brainstormed as a class, um, I can see that my students kind of lean this way or lean this way or have heard more about it yeah. from this perspective. And notice before you move on to the next one that this is like if teachers are familiar with KWL charts, like mm-hmm. what do you know, what do you want to know, what have you learned? But instead of saying what do you know, it's what is everything you've heard? And that's a really important change to make because especially when you're talking about something more polarizing, like, okay, what is everything you've heard about um, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you say, what do you know about the Black Lives Matter movement, that makes kids feel like they're up on their soapbox now, either saying, here's why it's great or here's why it's terrible. Or it alienates them if they don't know anything They don't about know it. anything. But if you instead say, what is everything you've heard, whether you might not know if it's true or not, then you get kids that say, well, I heard my mom say this one time, but I don't know if it's true. It like opens kids up to share more because they're not they're not sharing their personal opinion on it, and they're not even necessarily sharing something that they feel confident is true. It's literally like, did you see a headline one time? What did it say? So Yeah. And then during the discussion, I encourage students to think um, who – during the discussion or after the discussion? Um, I think it's like during the discussion as if they're sharing their opinion, for example. Mm. So if they're saying – um, Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem is disrespectful to um, soldiers. Mm-hmm. Then you might ask them this question. Yes. So then you might ask who might disagree with you and what would their strongest argument be. And mm-hmm. again, that's just trying to create well-rounded students who understand different perspectives. Because mm-hmm. if you are just reiterating what your parents say or what you read on the news um, and you've not even thought about this from a different person's point of view, um, this is starting taking baby steps to encourage that. Mm-hmm. 
And then after the discussion, um, two questions that we were like asking are, what is someone, something that you heard someone else say that increased your understanding of this subject? Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that is kind of from your perspective or from a different perspective. And what is something that you heard that is different from your perspective that you thought was a good point? And again, that's building these bridges toward empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the key here is that in a discussion about current events, especially very divisive topics, which we'll get into in a second, I try to ask them, I try to barely ever ask them, what is your opinion on this topic? I instead try to get them to voice like, what did a classmate say in your small group that you thought was a really good point? Like, I try to remove it from the personal aspect of like, well, I believe blah, blah, blah. Kids will still do that. But the more that you can ask them to kind of analyze and say, okay, well, you believe this thing. Who is a person that might reasonably disagree with you? Like it's what you're doing is you're not you're not only getting that kid to think, but you're also showing the whole class that this is a safe place to share whatever opinion they have. If yes, that makes sense. Absolutely. When you're asking these types of questions, then kids realize that your job is basically to play kind of devil's advocate to whatever the kid says. And so now students feel like you're not necessarily questioning a kid because you don't agree with them. You're questioning a kid because you want to expand their view on the topic. And it makes kids just feel a lot safer to be in your classroom and to share those things. So. Um, Another thing that you can do to practice perspective taking is you can do this outside of current events completely. What that means is if you are a teacher and you're sitting here like, okay, this is great, but I don't teach social studies or I don't have time to do a whole lesson on a current event, that's fine. What you can do is you can incorporate those same questions that Emily was just talking about into any discussion that you have, right? So if you're an English teacher and you're talking about having kids analyze like the main theme of your book, you could say, well, is there someone else who thinks the theme might be different? Or how would someone from a different viewpoint view this book differently, right? I mean, like you can ask these types of questions in almost any lesson that you're doing. A few examples though, is like you can root these discussions. For example, as a history teacher, it's a lot more natural, I think, than in a lot of other classes. So for example, when we talk about the Mongols, we always do a discussion. And we used to, we started, we actually first did a debate, Mm -hmm. right? We used to do a debate about were the Mongols barbarians, yes or no. Mm -hmm. And over time, we've changed that to, to what extent should we call the Mongols barbarians? Which again, allows for more of a discussion rather than a debate of like, it's all black and white. Um, or if you're reading a book, so I love The Hunger Games. I don't think schools read The Hunger Games, but they should. Um, but if, for example, I was teaching, if I taught English, I would have my kids read The Hunger Games. And I might ask, like, what would this series look like if it was written from the perspective of a citizen of the capital, right? They might view the rebellion differently. They might call it something different, right? Um, if you're teaching about a new theory in science or if you're talking about a new discovery, think have them think about, okay, at the time this was discovered, how would different people view this discovery? Would some people see this as a good thing? Would some people see this as a bad thing? So if we get to like the Big Bang Theory or we're talking about vaccines or whatever, getting them to just think really quickly about how might someone who is a person of faith describe or understand the Big Bang? How might someone who is a scientist who's not of faith, how might they explain the Big Bang, right? We're not taking away from your lesson. This is supplementing and adding to it. Yeah. Or if you want to go like even more extreme, the uh, one major lesson that I've done on this, and I don't, you can totally delete this from the podcast, mm-hmm. is whenever we talk about revolutions or when I used to at Anderson, um, I would always teach the American Revolution from the British perspective. Yes, me too. And I had to go into like this, you know, open slide on my PowerPoint saying, hey, I don't hate the United States. I think it's a great place. We have a lot of freedoms, but also I'm going to teach this from a different perspective so that you understand mm-hmm like what what the British felt when we, like we view this event as like this most heroic historical thing, which honestly like we wouldn't have won without the French, but whatever. <laughs> but like we, 
yeah, we view this as, like, kind of the crowning moment. And the British were like, oh, yeah, these, like, weird colonists over here are kind of revolting over some taxes. But, like, we have all these other colonies that we tax yes. more. And I think that that was, like, a really unique way to teach a lesson. So yeah. any teacher can do this from a different perspective. Right. We were committing treason, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, yeah, we thought it was enlightened treason. But mm-hmm. it was still treason. And I also, the fact that I love talking to the kids about is they don't know about this thing called the League of Armed Neutrality. <gasps> where every other major power in Europe, including, like, Russia and the Ottomans and everyone, they all were super excited to see the British get knocked down a few notches. They yes. thought it was hilarious that the American colonists were, like, trying to overthrow them. And so they basically joined in this league where they said, we're going to, like, pester the British all over the world. So we're going to, like, stop their navy in, in, you know, outside of India to say, like, oh, are you bringing shipments of, you know, arms back to the colonies, blah, blah, blah. We're going to try to keep the seas neutral. And they did it just to, like, make it even harder. So what we don't realize is, that, like, we were putting all of our effort into fighting the British, and they were fighting, like, everyone, everyone at the same time. Yes. And at some point, we didn't win. They just gave up. Yeah, they, they were, were like, we're going to get our like, losses. fine. Okay, Be we'll free. just leave. Yep. Um, I agree. I love showing kids Schoolhouse Rock and having them then analyze Schoolhouse Rock from other perspectives. So we'll mm-hmm. watch, like, the Schoolhouse Rock on the America, on the colonies, and then I'll ask them, like, okay, uh, what if you were a person of Native American descent watching, watching this? And they note that, like, Native Americans showed up, like, literally once. They were hiding behind a rock, and then yes. they ran away and never existed again. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think this is something that we can do a lot in a lot of classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, for example, if you then want to make connections, so if you do want to just incorporate some like perspective taking questions into your content, you can stop there. You could also now start to make connections to current events. So if you're talking about the Mongols, to what extent would they be barbarians? You could then ask a question of, who do you think would be the modern equivalent of the Mongols? Pick me, pick me. Who do you think? ISIS. You think ISIS, why? Well, because they are taking over much of the Middle East and destroying things. Yeah, that's, yeah. Burning things to the ground. Just that's, like the Mongols. That's what the Mongols... And they used really horrific methods, but they felt like um, they were justified in the thing they were doing because of some, right, belief in superiority? I yeah, don't know. I don't sure. know if the Mongols believe that. But, um, yeah. The, I've also... I've, I've posed this question to students, and some students say, like, groups like ISIS, and another student said the internet, and I was really intrigued. And they said the Mongols would be like the internet because after they conquered all of Eurasia, they united them in this, like, Silk Road, this Pax Mongolica, mm-hmm. where trade and ideas and beliefs could spread more quickly than ever before. Early globalization. Yeah, and I was really intrigued because in the same class, one kid said ISIS and one kid said the internet. And that in itself then was a discussion on perspective. That in itself was like, well, why did you go to ISIS? Well, that student was really focusing on the part of the Mongol history that was like the brutal conquest. Mm -hmm. And another student was focusing on the after effects. And so they came to different conclusions. Mm -hmm. It was really fascinating. I love that. Um, For example, if you're reading a book like my example of The Hunger Games, you could ask, are there any elements of American society in this book? Um, So you could talk about, like, would maybe, like, Bernie Sanders would probably love The Hunger Games, right? Because he would see the capital as the 1% who's taking over all the banks and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You could think about, like, what figures in American society might really resonate or might really uh, connect with the capital and what groups might really connect with, like, the um, districts, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, scientific discovery you can ask are there current discoveries that are not universally accepted right you could talk about the whole anti-vaccine movement or you could talk about the debate around cloning right there's there's now becoming like genetically kind of modified embryos and stuff and that's a big debate right so there are ways if you would like to and notice we're not talking about replacing the lessons you're already doing we're just talking about supplementing them with one or two extra questions that it's super easy it can take as short as like five minutes out of your lesson plan but what you're doing is you're starting to introduce these ideas 
throughout the day so that a kid doesn't just show up at social studies and that's when we talk about current events, but if they're getting these types of questions in science class, in English class, in art class, then all of a sudden it's making it more important to them. Yeah, and again, we as social studies teachers understand that it is so easy to connect anything that's happening in the world right now to something that has happened in history, mm -hmm. but we also, at the end of this, are going to give everyone of all of the different backgrounds a bunch of different tips about how they can start incorporating this into their classroom as well. Yeah. For now, um, we want to kind of show you how you can dig in even further. So we want to kind of show you the most, I don't want to say extreme, that's not, like the most thorough way that you can talk about current events in the classroom. So we want to kind of show you if you wanted to go all in and like, let's go, let's do a whole unit or a whole week or whatever on current events. We, I want to show you how I would do that in the classroom. Um, knowing that not everyone and most people won't have the time or resources to do that, but we're hoping that if we show you like how far you can take it, that at least everyone will feel empowered to find something along the way that they can at least try. Yes. Right. Um, so these are my tips for talking about divisive current events. So this is assuming that like you're not just making connections with the content you're already teaching. You're saying, all right, I want to actually have a discussion about some current kind of polarizing current event. Um, so what are, what are the ways that we do that? So step one for me, and this is one of my things that I'm most passionate about, is developing a safe classroom environment where students feel like they have the ability to be themselves and say what they want to say without other people um, like rolling their eyes or shutting them down. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Emily, is that I think that I model this well as a teacher when I just say, like, I don't know. Because I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. Because I know I teach 10,000 years worth of history, and my breadth is... Uh, very wide, but my depth is very narrow because, I mean, you know, I know certain things about certain things. But I have a kid this year who is obsessed with Japanese history, and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But he always asks me these things and says these strange Japanese words, and I'm like, I don't know, but you should go look it up. Or you could just teach the class this. Like, mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable with saying I don't know as a teacher to let them know that, like, we're not on the same level. Like, I'm still their authority figure. But I think of just, like, understanding that, like, I don't have all the answers, and it's okay if you don't have all of the answers. Yeah. Um, this is obviously, this step takes the whole year, yes. right? This is not a step where you can just say, okay, for the first five minutes, I'm going to develop a safe classroom <laughs> environment. But I think that... Um, it's like kids need to feel my point is you shouldn't do a discussion about North Korea on day two. Right. Right. You need to kind of work your way up. But I also think that I use a lot of we language when I'm mm. talking about current events. So I say, what do we want to know? Or what have we heard about? And I kind of sometimes share not my personal opinion necessarily, but I will share questions I have or I will. I'll say like, yeah, man, I heard, I read this article, but I'll be honest, I only read the headline. I haven't gotten a chance to read everything. Um, has anyone else known? And I will ask them questions. I will kind of empower them and say, hey, does anyone know more about this? Because I don't know a lot about it yet. And I agree with you. I think just showing them that like, this is an ongoing process. You're never going to know current events. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be like, I now know everything going on in the world. I agree. I think showing them that you are kind of on that level too, at least to some extent, is really helpful. Yeah, because I feel like some teachers, I remember when I was in high school, I had the older teachers who were really the sage on the stage type. And I didn't want to say anything wrong because I thought that I would be like, I would, I would be embarrassed to say yeah. something wrong to this teacher who knew everything. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the things you can do. Obviously there are a lot of other ways to develop a safe classroom environment. Mm -hmm. um, knowing kids' names would be helpful, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, that's the general idea. Yeah. Uh, step two is to start with topics that where your class, you are confident that your class has a consensus on. And this is, you know your classrooms better than we know your classrooms. So based on what you have observed the whole year, start with a very non-divisive topic. For example, North Korea mm -hmm. is bad. Yeah. 
I don't think you're going to get a lot of kids coming in guns blazing that Kim Jong-un is great. Yes. So the point of uh, the point of finding one where your class has a consensus is is not that it's something where no one's going to have a dis- there's no discussion to be had, but it's that the basic premise is not debatable. Yeah. Right. Of saying like, OK, we're going to agree that the Kim Jong-un dictatorship is bad and he's mistreating his people. We all sort of agree on that. Now, what should be done about it? That's mm-hmm. a discussion that can now be had. Um, so, but if you start off the conversation and you think the basic premise is going to be an object of debate or discussion, I wouldn't start there. Yeah. Right. Um, for my class, it's always marijuana. Marijuana is the one where like, unfortunately, well, I don't know, unfortunately or whatever, um, kids always have a general consensus that they think it should be legalized. That's not the discussion. The discussion is how and to what extent and for everyone and how should it be regulated and should it be up to the states or should it be up to the government right so the idea is you know your kids you pick a topic where you know the basic premise will be easy for everyone to accept then you go from there right you can eventually work your way up to i mean i now have discussions with my kids where the whole basic premise is discussable and debatable but that's right that's kind of that's don't start there yeah right you're in march now yeah you've done this a few times (laughs) yeah Um, My third piece of advice for talking about divisive current events is to always start by rooting your topic in something that's a little bit more mundane. So something from history, something like a philosophical question, a book that you're reading. Don't just jump in and say, today we're talking about Colin Kaepernick, right? Start by saying, today we're going to talk about protest. What do you think? Like you could even start with a philosophical question. Discuss with your group. What do you think is the most effective form of protest? Or sometimes I'll start by asking kids, do you think that violent protest is ever necessary? I don't give them any context for the question. I don't say what they're protesting. You start with just a very philosophical thing that gets them thinking and talking. And I kind of like to treat my students like very scared cats. And it's like, we just got to slowly back them into it. Like if you show them right away, (laughs) hey, y'all, we're in a big circle and we're talking about Black Lives Matter, they're going to be like, ah, and they're going to want to run out of the room. But if you slowly back them into the room, and so by the time they're talking, but you turn them around and you're like, haha, I tricked you, then they feel more comfortable. Yes. Right? Um, for, as an example, I used to teach at a very conservative Islamic private school. And I, in fact, facilitated a very productive discussion with sixth graders Ooh. about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict <gasps> and what should be done in Israel and Palestine. It was my first year teaching. I don't know what was wrong that with That is me. very bold of you. I don't know how I got didn't get fired. But, um, but what I did was I started by talking to them about Cuba. So I talked to them about Cuba. And I said, okay, we have the Cuban Revolution, right? And we had people that lived in Havana and lived in these really nice homes. But then they either fled or were forced out by the Castro regime. Now there are other people that have been living there for like two generations and they had them discuss what do you think should be done do you think that the people in miami should get to go back and reclaim their homes and we had a really productive discussion and then i just turned the little scared cats around and said okay now if we think about it in a longer period of time that's the same as the israeli-palestinian conflict right the people from israel like they they were there and then they fled or were forced out and then over that thousand years or so other people moved in and now they've been living there for almost a thousand years so what do we do and it all of a sudden got them to see that if i if they'd walked in and i'd immediately said we're talking about israel-palestine there's no way but they i helped them understand it in some other topic first and then i turned them around yes um the 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 fourth tip out of five is just don't assume any prior knowledge, right? Don't walk in assuming that your kids really know anything even basic about the topic. Um, just because some kids probably will, but you don't want to alien alienate any kids who don't. So I typically always have some part of this lesson be a direct teach, where I direct teach just basic facts about the event. So I will say, here are just basic facts that are quantitative, right, about... Um, 
climate change or about North Korea, right? I try not to put in any sort of like analysis. I just say, here are the basic events of what's happened in North Korea so that every kid is sort of starting off on the same page. Um, and the last thing, and I think this is the most important tip if you're going to talk about big current events, is to pick a focused and tangible issue that your kids can wrap their head around. Meaning, instead of saying, we're going to talk about like racism or protest or Black Lives Matter, say, we're going to talk specifically about Colin Kaepernick and his form of protest. Or instead of saying, we're going to talk about transgender issues, say, we're going to talk about this specific bathroom bill. Um, so the idea is, if you just sit back and try to have a discussion about like transgender rights, that is going to go off the rails really fast. Mm -hmm. But if you give them something very tangible, where it is like, we're going to look at a specific part of transgender rights, and that is this bathroom bill that's been introduced, well, that is a lot more approachable for students. And it's a lot less vague and murky. And they won't feel as overwhelmed, thinking right. that they have to answer all parts of right. everything to do with transgender rights. In, right, you know, 47 minutes. Yeah, it gives them something very tangible that they can look <clears throat> at and say, I agree or disagree or I'm somewhere in the middle on this specific thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, okay. So we um, are going to, not today for listeners, but we are, we are then going to go through kind of a sample lesson. Um, so we'll establish kind of our classroom norms that we always have in our class, which, do you want to share these? Sure. Number one, when you're not sharing, you're listening or asking questions. And I'm all about active listening. You're not just waiting to talk. And you should be listening or asking questions more than you actually share your opinion. Mm -hmm. Number two is that you should be thoughtful and share your experience if you have one to share. Uh, or as I like to say, share your truth. Because my truth might be different than someone else's truth. So you should share your experience and kind of make it known that like that is what you believe and that is your truth. Mm -hmm. And then number three is that discomfort equals growth. I know that we get so irritated about getting being uncomfortable in any way, but... If we want to grow this whole growth mindset idea, like mm -hmm. you need to experience some discomfort in order to achieve that. So as I like to say, accept and expect non -con <laughs> <laughs> As you love to say. Accept and expect non-closure. Yeah, I think the big thing here, again, is that there is not going to be a resolution at the end of the day. Like, I, and we need to tell kids that at the very beginning. We need to say, like... We are, there is, I do not have an end goal. Like my end goal is not that I want everyone to love Colin Kaepernick. Like there's no resolution and you're going to walk away and you might have totally different feelings or opinions than the person next to you. And that's fine. Like, I think that we need to shift it towards the goal of the day is to gather perspectives. Like we're going on like a fact finding or experience finding mission, right? And that the whole goal is that you're going to walk out with at least more perspectives than you had at the beginning of the day. And if you are upset that the bell rang and that you want to continue these conversations, that's incredible. And we did our job well, because then you're right. wanting to continue these conversations outside of the classroom with other people. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that if, if we shift that to, to being the focus, it relieves a lot of pressure. It relieves a lot of pressure on kids who feel like they have to like have an answer. Um, and it relieves pressure on the teacher who like, if I walk in and I really, I don't know, am really in support of bathroom bills. And I now feel like I'm going to fail if any of my kids walk out and don't support bathroom bills. Well, that's a lot of pressure. And that's also going to get me in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's now a teacher coming in with their own agenda. But if instead I say, I just want students to walk out of my class at the end of the day, having gained new perspectives on the bathroom bill, that is much more achievable. Yep. And it's also a lot more fair to your students. Mm -hmm. So cool. Um, so the lesson that we are going to do is one that I've done for a few years and is really successful and I really love it. Um, we start by step one, rooting our topic in history or philosophy. So how would we do that? 
So uh, we are going to give out two different readings. One is from Dr. Martin Luther King's book, Stride Toward Freedom. That's actually not right. Uh oh. I'll change it. It's actually, I changed it to Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. So one is from Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. And the second is from a speech called uh, The Ballot or the Bullet by Malcolm X. Yeah. It's one of my favorite speeches of all time. Yeah. If you've ever heard it. He's quite passionate. It's a really, it's a really powerful speech. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we're going to have them uh, read through those two uh, documents at their table. Um, we've cut out excerpts, right? Not the whole yeah, thing? it's like a it's like a short document. We'll have the table split up so that half of them are reading King and half of them are reading Malcolm X. And then what we're going to do is teach uh, some annotation skills through mm -hmm. all of this. So as they read, they're going to highlight or underline the main argument. So how this specific leader views the civil rights movement and or protests. And then as they're reading, they're also going to circle any specific evidence that they use. And this, again, is just like a good history skill in general. An of English skill, any skill, yeah. right? Um, and notice, too, that, that what we're going to have them do is it says circle specific evidence or experiences that they use to support their argument. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to show them that people from history have also followed our classroom norms, <gasps> right? That's essential. we're trying to get them to see is like that it is okay. I mean, let's... Dr. King and Malcolm X have some experiences. Yes, they right? do. They, and they're, both of their arguments are going to be less fact-driven than they are experience-driven. And so we're getting kids to, to notice when they're doing it. So what are, I always like to talk to kids about, like, do you know anything about King's childhood? Do you know anything about Malcolm X's childhood? Very different, mm -hmm. right? One, Malcolm X's father was killed. Mother ended up in an insane asylum. Like, really horrific stuff. Um, and so getting them to see that, like, they're coming to this with very different experiences, and so that informs their perspective differently. So getting them to even analyze this in kind of historic figures or authority figures is going to help kind of empower them that, like, their personal experiences can also inform their perspective. Yes. Right? So... Um, so once they do that, they will kind of share out um, what they found so that everyone at the table has a basic idea of what King's argument is. I mean, essentially nonviolent protest, mm -hmm. love your enemy, uh, versus Malcolm X, which is not violent protest all the time, but that violence might be a useful tool. Mm -hmm. um, so then step two is we're not assuming any prior knowledge. If I were doing this in the classroom with my students, I would have a quick direct teach about the Black Lives Matter movement. So I would have a few slides of like some basic facts about just here are things that have happened, right? I would talk about Trayvon Martin, who he was and what happened to him. And I would try not to make any sort of assessment on what happened to him, except that it was terrible that a person died. Um, but I would essentially say like, here's what, here's what supporters of Trayvon said. Here's what supporters of Zimmerman said. Let's move on, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, we're not establishing any sort of opinion. For the purposes of our lesson um, at South by Southwest, I'm going to basically skip that step a little bit, assuming that most of the adults in the room will know some basic stuff. So yep. we'll just ask the question, what do we already know about the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, and so this will be, again, the opportunity for, this is a great opportunity for students who are kind of news savvy to show off a little bit, to be like, oh, I read a bunch of articles about this, and they feel kind of excited. And it's also a good opportunity for you as the teacher to model asking questions. Mm -hmm. So if a student shares something and you ask good follow-up questions, then the other students in the room are noticing that like, oh, the teacher doesn't know everything about this too. So they feel a little more empowered to share. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so um, after we do, what do we already know about the Black Lives Matter movement? We will have them discuss at their table, based on what you read, how might Dr. King and Malcolm X view the Black Lives Matter movement? So now we're starting to make the connection between the two. We're saying, okay, you've read about these historic people. And now let's put them in 2019 or whatever year, right? And let's say if they were alive today, what would they say about the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that the general answer will probably be, I think Dr. King would be very much in support. Yes. Right? Um, I think Malcolm X would probably view it as not enough. 
Yes, still in support, still but in support. Uh, not extreme enough. Perhaps. But not enough. I think that he would argue that the fact that a lot of these people are still participating in the NFL, right, is maybe like that they're not actually, they're not being, um, they're not taking as enough of a risk, right? As yes. I, what I would imagine Malcolm X would say. Oh, right? yeah. The, or you could go like full Mar- Marcus Garvey and say like, hey, let's just take every black person out of the NFL. Ooh, which would actually be a really effective form of protest. Yeah. Say, we're just not going to play, right? So Ma- Malcolm X would probably say, instead of just kneeling, we need to just walk out, mm-hmm. right? And then they will see, because like, he's all about like black power, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I hadn't even really thought about that aspect of it, that he would say that like that's not enough and that we need to like, why don't they just create a black football league, right? <gasps> that would be, frankly way more entertaining yeah. than a white football league, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that having people discuss, and this is sort of a fun part of this activity, mm-hmm. right? And it's using kids' imagination. Like, I think this is a really great tool of, like, just getting kids to think in this new way of saying, like, let's take this person. I mean, you can do this with anyone. You could say, like, pick some... I, I just all the time with George Washington. I'm like... <laughs> Your well, favorite. I love George. But what if... It's like, what if George Washington was alive today? He'd oh. be so disappointed, right? We did all the things differently that he said we should do. So I think this is a really good tool for even just thinking more creatively. So how would how would Malcolm X, how would MLK view the Black Lives Matter movement? Then step three is we're now going to focus in on a very, very tangible question. Um, and I want you all to notice, I'll let Emily kind of explain this, but I want you all to notice first that at this point, we have not yet asked kids to share their opinion at all. That's really important. Notice that like we, that is sort of the last step in this lesson is having kids share their own opinion. Because again, you want these opinions to be based on evidence or experience. And so if you just ask them right off the bat to share their opinion, then students are gonna feel the need for the rest of the lesson to defend that opinion. They're not gonna be willing, they're not gonna be listening as much. They're gonna be looking for that confirmation that we already talked about. And so if you don't, com- if you don't make them commit to an opinion at the beginning, it gives them more leeway to grow over the lesson. Yes. Cool. Yeah, so the style of question that I really like asking in my class is to what extent dot, dot, dot. Because I feel like in the past, especially Emily and I have talked about the fact that we did this, um, like is Colin Kaepernick or are the the Mongols barbaric, yes or no? Um, And I think that just is causing people to choose a side, even if they don't fully agree with that entire side. And I think that just kind of goes back to how the world is today. Uh, We have started thinking of people as bad or good or right or wrong, rather than realizing that everyone's bad and good and right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that is kind of opening up this gray area rather than making things black and white. So if we say, you know, to what extent are the Mongols barbaric? Well, you know, they were really good at promoting peace and stability once they brutally conquered all of Asia. (laughs) So I think that that allows you to see, that allows you to take yeah, more of a gray area of seeing like the good in a person or in a group of people and also the bad. Mm-hmm. So our question is, to what extent should Colin Kaepernick be considered a modern civil rights leader like MLK or Malcolm X? And we're going to have people initially write down their answer to this question, and we're going to tell them very clearly that you are not going to be asked to share this with anyone. We want this to be sort of a safe space for them to kind of work through their thoughts. And I intentionally picked a question that I, I think I don't know. I'm hoping people in the audience will first, will first kind of balk at. Meaning, like, this idea that, like, should Colin Kaepernick be on the level of Dr. King? Right? That's kind of intentionally, not provocative. It's kind of provocative, Kind though. of provocative, though, right? Where I want, I want it to be that, like, and that's the point of the to what extent, 
right, is that I'm, I'm imagining very few people will say 100%. I'm imagining very few people will say, like, let's make a Colin Kaepernick day that gets us a day off school just like MLK Day. But <laughs> if you give them that whole range, right, so if you, if you make the statement very extreme, it gives the students the most room to form their own opinion. To form their own opinion. Yeah. Right? Because the most extreme is 100% yes, but that then gives them so much room between completely yes to completely no. Yeah. And a uh, fun side note, I like to inc- I encourage my students to answer this question in minor, moderate, or major. So Ooh. it was a moderate extent. If he is to a moderate extent, he is to a major extent or to a minor extent. Cool. That makes sense. Um, okay. So they will write down their opinion on this question and then we will present them with some opposing viewpoints. So I've compiled um, three mostly kind of opinion articles specifically about Colin Kaepernick. One is from the ACLU. It's very pro-Kaepernick. It's called The Spirit of 1968 Lives on Today in Athletes Athletes Like Colin Kaepernick. There's one that's sort of moderate. It's actually the open letter from Nate Boyer, who was the Green Beret who um, played in the NFL. It's called An Open Letter to Colin Kaepernick from a Green Beret Turned Long Snapper. It's actually a really fascinating read. Uh, Colin Kaepernick and Nate Boyer met after that letter was published. And he's actually, Nate Boyer is actually the reason why Colin Kaepernick decided to kneel instead of sitting, because he realized that sitting could be interpreted as disrespectful to the troops. Anyway. And I feel like that is two people with different viewpoints Mm -hmm. sitting down and having a productive conversation. Yeah, that letter in itself is a really good case study in what we're trying to promote to kids. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is from Newsweek. It's an opinion article that says Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad is ridiculous. He has sacrificed nothing. Um, And so as you can tell, one is very pro, one sort of moderate, and one is anti. And what I I asked the students to do is based on what they wrote down as their initial opinion, that they should pick the article that is the most different from their opinion. So if they are walking in going 100% Kaepernick is great, then they should read the article saying it's ridiculous, he sacrificed nothing. Because what we don't want is we don't want to create another echo chamber, right? Right. We don't want kids, because if kids pick the one they want to read, they're going to pick the one that probably matches their viewpoint already. And that's not very productive. Yeah, that's not what this is about. We want to expose kids to different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so this, um, again, in this this message of like, you're not, again, we're not, you're not arming yourself for a debate, right? Because if this were a debate, kids would pick the article that already confirmed their viewpoint. And then that's just, we're doing what, they, what they're experiencing online. If instead we say, we're not debating, we are gathering as many different perspectives as possible, then kids will want to read the thing that's different. Yes. Um, after they, re- as they're reading, they're going to annotate the same way we did it before, highlight or underline the main argument. How do they view Kaepernick and the protest and circle specific evidence or experience they use to support that argument. Once they have done that, um, they're going to discuss with their table. They're going to kind of go around first and just kind of explain what the article was about since not everyone will have a chance to read all three articles. And then they will discuss with their table. What this. was the most compelling argument that you heard that is different from your initial opinion? So this is, again, trying to reinforce a different perspective and why people who view this issue differently than you do uh, have that opinion and have that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And this question always throws students off the first time I ask it because they think they know what I'm going to ask. And they think I'm going to ask, like, what was the best argument that you heard? Um, But by asking them, what is the best argument you heard that contradicts your viewpoint? That makes them really have to step back and think critically. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
So um, the last activity that we're gonna do is another just kind of way that you can get kids to gather different perspectives. It's actually a physical activity called Exploding Adam. Um, and essentially what it is, is you get everyone to stand up. So everyone in the audience will stand up and you make a statement that again, should be a relatively extreme statement. So my statement is Colin Kaepernick should 100% be considered a civil rights leader like MLK and Malcolm X. And then you explain, and there's sort of a graphic that you can see if you go look at this, um, the presentation I posted, that basically you establish wherever the center of the room will be. And if you completely agree with that statement with no issues, you stand as close to the center as possible. If you completely disagree with every part of that statement, you stand as far away from the center as possible. And you can also stand anywhere in between. So the idea is it gives you, it's sort of a, a, visual, a physical representation of Emily's like to what extent question. Instead of, and I know I've, I've had um, teachers do forced choice, which is fine for some things, which is like stand on this side of the room if you agree, this side if you disagree. Some teachers will do four corners, where let's say like completely agree, sort of agree, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But I like this even better because <clears throat> it gives students complete freedom to be anywhere on that spectrum that they wanna be. And then you can actually get a visual of where students are and depending on how comfortable you feel with your students, you can either call on them randomly, say, hey, I saw you start running away from the center as quickly as possible, why? Or um, you can ask for student volunteers if you feel like, especially if it's a topic that is a little bit more emotional or personal and you don't wanna put students on the spot to have to justify where they're standing. This is another thing that you notice you should only do at the very end. You should never make students do this and commit to this viewpoint at the beginning. This should be like a concluding activity. Emily, I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. So as you're having this discussion, if you're having this discussion while students are standing in the circle, mm -hmm. um, would it be beneficial for students to move closer or further away to the center based on what they're hearing other people say? Yes, I actually encourage students. That sounds like we made up that question for me to answer, we but we did not. I just that sounded that. very much like a stage question. <laughs> but um, yes, I actually encourage students to move. So I say, okay. like, if so, if someone says something that kind of makes a really good point and they want to then move closer to that student or further away. But again, it's not about, I, and actually I wouldn't say closer to that student because we don't want it to make it about winning. We don't want to make students feel like, oh, well, I'm going to try to get people to move towards me. Um, so I would kind of be careful with that. But I do encourage students to move if they, over even the course of that discussion, change their mind. Yeah, and I think this gives them the freedom to do that more so than like moving to a different corner or something. Because you can like take a step forward or step back. Yeah, it's a little bit less. Yeah, it's a lower barrier to entry, right? You don't have to like walk across the room, which right. teenagers just... They're mortified. They're mortified. They don't want anyone to look at them. <laughs> Ever. But then they want everyone to look at them. All at the same time. But no one to look at them at the same time. So... The last thing we would now do is we would ask them the same question again. So what I'm what I always have for my students is a really basic worksheet that is literally a box at the top that says initial writing. So that's where they would have written their initial opinion to the question about Colin Kaepernick. Then I just leave a blank space in the middle third of the document and that's for them to just jot down notes and thoughts as we do these different activities. So as they read the articles, as we do Exploding Adam, whatever. And then there's another box at the very bottom that says closing writing. And you ask them, what I normally do is I ask them the same question again. So we ask them again, to what extent should Colin Kaepernick be considered a modern civil rights leader like MLK or Malcolm X? And they write their answer. And then I've added just one more question. If your opinion has changed, what changed it? Or if your opinion has stayed the same, what confirmed it? So what we're doing is two things. One, as a teacher, you can now assess their growth. You can like get a worksheet handed into you and give them a grade, not based on what their opinion is, but based on did they show you that they were really thoughtful and really considering 
different opinions um, throughout the day? And did they, even if their opinion didn't change, that ability to now assess their opinion, well, why did it stay the same? That's like an AP level. That's changing continuity over time, Mm -hmm. by the way. Um, But so that is a really nice way to get kids to kind of assess their own performance of like, well, why did my opinion stay the same? Did I did I hear something that confirmed it? Maybe I heard a negative thing that I thought was a really bad argument and that confirmed it for me. Or maybe I heard, found a fact that maybe I'd always believed this thing, but now I have a fact to back it up. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I took your slide from you. This says you're supposed to talk about it. but You did a wonderful job. Thanks. Um, okay, so that is the full lesson. Now and only now is when we talk about fake news. And so... This is really important. If you're doing a lesson like this and you want to incorporate fake news in your classroom, which again, we encourage, at the beginning, you should incorporate fake news separate from the actual lesson because you want to make it very clear that this is A, fake, and that this is not in any way, like you don't want people to think that InfoWars is on the same level as Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Nope. That is problematic. So at the the first time you do this, you want to have students solidify their whole opinion and then you show them the fake news because you don't want that like influencing their opinion in some negative way. So I've posted two pieces of fake news related to Colin Kaepernick. Again, at the beginning of the year, I would tell the kids up front, this is fake. I would make it very clear that this is fake news. For example, this one was originally posted on a satirical website and then it was shared on a real website um, that didn't realize it was satire or maybe (laughs) didn't care that it was satire. But Um, The title is Breaking, Kaepernick Arrested for Publicity Stunt During Anthem in San Fran. And it is from um, an online newspaper called The Conservative, not even called The, just Conservative Paper. When uh, Emily first showed me this slide, I asked her, is this real? Because just because of the title and the font in which Conservative Paper is written. It looks like, um, yeah, it looks like you made a logo using like wind, like Microsoft Word from 1999. Yes. Like where you did like the word art. Remember yeah. word art? That's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So what I, what we would do is I would just post this and say, I'm telling you this is fake point out things that could give you a clue that this is fake. And those would be things. Emily, how do you know this is fake? Ooh. So the thing that got me first is San Fran. The fact that in the title it says, Breaking, Kaepernick arrested for publicity stunt during Anthem in San Fran. I don't know why that just sounds weird. Like, mm-hmm. why they wouldn't say San Francisco. Mm-hmm. What's something else you notice? Well, the first line is, Traitorous Cretan and anti-American troublemaker. Ka- Colin, Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Yeah. Dot, dot, dot traitorous cretin is a very... Oh, wait, here's the rest of that sentence. Was just arrested for being stupid in public. Yeah. And that just sounds so wrong to me. It Yeah, and it's like, it just sounds super... I mean, it's, it's not even sounds. It is so opinionated and so provocative that it's like, you. hopefully you would get students laughing at that and saying like, okay, other news sources I've read don't sound like that. Yeah. Like even, and this is where it's important, like even if they read the article before from, or the uh, editorial from Newsweek that was like, you know, Kaepernick hasn't sacrificed anything. I mean, he wasn't using words like this to describe him. Um, You might also have kids notice just the literally like the font and the way that the logo looks weird. Um, This is also something that only I think football fans would know, but um, I was looking at this and apparently, um, well, the week that this article was published, they weren't playing in San Francisco. They were playing in a different city. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, The article ends with the police disagreed and Kaepernick is now a criminal, period. Right. Um, And so this would be, again, you start off by saying this is, in fact, fake. Tell me why. Tell me how you know it. So, again, teachers a lot of times will ask, like, what are lessons I can do to teach kids how to identify fake news? 
honestly, for me, the best lesson is just show them a lot of fake news. Yeah. And and point out things as you see them. Yeah, exposure is a good thing because then whenever they face whenever they are faced with this outside of the classroom, they need to understand what they can be looking for that lets them know that this article is fake. Right. Um, so then we have another one that is an ad. This is intentionally fake. Someone created it just to like trick people. Um, it's an ad that says, uh, it's a coupon. It says Nike offers 75% off all shoes for people of color until 2019. It has a little, whole little slogan. It has a picture of Colin Kaepernick. Um, and it has like a barcode. It looks like a real coupon sort of. Um, and it was posted anonymously on 4chan. Uh-oh. So then I would ask Warning students. Warning sign. Yeah, I would ask students, what are some things that would tell you that this might be fake? It's posted anonymously on 4chan. Yeah, so even if students don't know what 4chan is, it's anonymous, right? Mm-hmm. So anything that's being posted anonymously, if you're posting something that's real, you would want credit for it. If you're posting something that's, like, real and valid and you've, like, uncovered this scandal, you would want credit for it. Yeah. You wouldn't post it anonymously. And uh, they spelled solidarity wrong, which is my also biggest giveaway. Oh my gosh, I never even noticed that. Mm-hmm. It just shows solidarity. Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice mm-hmm. that part of it. That's amazing. My my thing is if I saw this, even if I didn't see that it was posted anonymously on 4chan, which 4chan is not a reputable website. It's nope. kind of where terrible people go to, mm-hmm. right. Um, my issue would be, I would have a lot of questions about this. Like, so how are you going to redeem this coupon? Like, how do you prove you're a person of color, right? Mm. Like, because I'm like, shoot, so now are they making everyone at Nike's going to have to racially profile every mm. customer that comes oh. in, right? And so the point is, like, we should be encouraging students to ask those questions. Students will think that they're making a joke. Like, if I've shown this to students before and they think they're joking by being like, oh, what, so Nike's just going to, like, try to decide what race people are? And then they'll think they're kind of getting us off task and joking. And I will point out that's a really good point to make, mm-hmm. right? If you're seeing something like that that seems really problematic, there's probably a reason for it, right? Um so notice that we've introduced this fake news. This is sort of our inoculation phase. We are showing them, we are kind of, we're vaccinating them, sort of, right? We are showing them a small amount of fake news and showing them ways that they can identify it. As the year goes on, as I started to feel more comfortable that my students were getting it, I would start to like hide fake news in their lessons. So for example, when I give them the opposing viewpoints, I might give them one article that is fake news. And I would start to see like our kids noticing it. Now to be clear, I would not let them leave my classroom not understanding that that thing was fake. Yeah, that'd be bad. That would be bad. Um, But the idea is that as your kids progress, that you should be able to start throwing in like a fake video or something like that. And you should hope that students are going to identify that and say, this seems kind of weird to me, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that's the idea is that over time, this is the best way I think that you can teach kids about fake news. Yeah, it's how we inoculate them against it by including it in our classroom. Just do it. Just show it to them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so here's where we would stop and ask the audience if they have questions about that lesson and how we facilitated it. And also I'm hoping that we'll have teachers that would want to share if they've ever tried to teach a current event lesson. And honestly, what we could even do is say like, did it go well? Did it go terribly? Right? Because I think there could be lessons to be learned from. Or to what extent was your lesson successful? (laughs) To what extent? (laughs) Does that have to be black and white? That's totally fair. (laughs) To what extent was your lesson successful? I think that could be kind of cool because I would love to hear if there are teachers who are now scared to talk about current events because they had a bad experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, it could be almost like teacher therapy and we could even provide some like, hey, here are some ways that maybe we could tweak the thing that you tried to do um, and maybe try it again. Yeah. That might be a good thing to do. So our good news 
is what, Emily? You don't have to be a social studies teacher to do this. Yay. Uh, yes, there are so many ways that we're about to tell you that you can incorporate current events into your classroom uh, just during regular time. Yeah, and I think the point is that we totally understand that most teachers do not have the time to stop and do entire lessons on current events that are not in their um, standards. And so if you do, that's wonderful. And, and if you can, please do it. But if not, like we hope that you're finding things that you can at least, you can even just add in as like five minutes of a lesson you're already doing. And if you're doing it relatively consistently, that is still helping so much. Um, so yeah, we have one example of just incorporating current events into your day or even just like once a week, very short. Yeah, so what we did when we both taught together is that we would have our students do really informal current events for a quiz grade, and they would have to do it once six weeks, and they would literally have to read through a news article and then summarize the news article in front of the classroom. That was it. Yeah, so if they if they stood up, so they would they would sign up for a day in the six weeks, and that would be their day. We told them you intentionally you have to procrastinate because this has to be current. It had to be from like the last week, mm -hmm. so it wasn't even like something they had to do it very far in advance. A lot of kids would just say, like, oh, I just read the news on my way to school this morning. I was like, great, that's what you're supposed to do. And all they would have to do is stand up and say, I read an article that said that Trump declared a national emergency to uh, build use funds to build a border wall, and Democrats are unhappy about it. And if that student sat down, they already got a B on a quiz grade for yep. literally just doing that. They could then get extra, po not extra points, but they could get up into the A range if they analyzed the source. Mm -hmm. They had to say more than just it was it's biased. biased. Um, and if they also connected it to our class in some way. Mm -hmm. So they might connect it to like the Qin Dynasty and Shi Huangdi who built the Great Wall of China to keep out the invaders from the north. If they did that, they got a 100 for a quiz grade. Now, I would like you to notice something. I have like a personal vendetta against current event journals. <gasps> and if I could, in my whole career, just eliminate current event journals, then I will feel like I've done a good thing. Emily, why do you hate them? Okay, so every year when I tell students, okay, now we're going to start doing some current event assignments, like the look of exasperation and exhaustion, that it's, it's not a joke. Like they look so frustrated when I just say the words current events. And inevitably I ask them, I'm like, have you had teachers that have had you do journals? And they're like, yes. It's too much work. Like it, it, what it does is it discourages kids from even trying current events on their own time. So what we need to do is we need to lower the barrier of entry for students to like read the news. Because if we make students feel like every time they read the news, they're going to have to like write an, an essay about it, or they're going to have to make some huge presentation in class that requires a lot of preparation. It's so discouraging. And it's something that students already don't really want to do. And now all it does is make them feel like it's so difficult because like when we read the news, like I don't then write an essay mm -hmm. about an article I read. I, I sometimes will sit around a picnic table with like an adult beverage and talk to teachers about that article I read, but that's it. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to be doing is we need to be helping simulate like how do adults consume the news and how can we make it so our students see that it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Like step one could be just skim, skim through the headlines. Yeah. And click on something that's interesting to you. Yeah. And again, this is like a really great launching off point for us as teachers if they have questions about whatever they just talked about. Like hopefully we are also staying up to date with current events and hopefully we can provide any answers to questions that they might have about if, that specific topic. And if you don't have answers, this is what's great about this. It's like mm -hmm. philosophy class. Like there's kind of no bad, no wrong answers. Mm -hmm. So if, if a student asks, I mean, I, I taught a whole class called Contemporary Issues. So in theory, I was supposed to know about everything that was going on all at that moment yep. all the time. And so students would ask me about something and they would say like, oh my gosh, did you hear what happened in Vietnam? And I'd be like, no. And so then what would I do? Go to a website. I would literally pull up my, my computer on my projector and Google Vietnam news. 
And I would, I would show students, I would take two minutes. Kids would think they were getting me off on a tangent. They thought they'd like want that they were getting me to like, you know, not, not do stuff for class time. And what I was doing was just showing them like, Hey, here's how I figure out things about the news. And so it, it like empowered kids to not know everything. And it also showed them how easy it is. Like they have the all, every piece of information at their fingertips and they don't use it because mm-hmm. it feels really overwhelming because mm-hmm. in the past they've been made to write like journals and art, you know, assessments and to do all this crazy stuff to read a current event. Right. And I feel like a lot of students nowadays also get their current events from Snapchat, which I don't have. But mm-hmm. I think that the news that they get on Snapchat is probably like 30 seconds long. Yeah. So if we even tell them, hey, that's a cool thing that you found or heard on Snapchat. Now, like what, how can you learn more about it? Just like encouraging students to kind of take that extra step to like read more rather than just what the phone tells them. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel super comfortable with your knowledge of current events, a great resource is a great resource is just CNN 10. So CNN puts out literally every single day a 10-minute video that goes over like the top news stories of that day. And that's it. And you could literally just say like, "Well, I'm taking role, we're going to watch CNN 10." Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, and you don't even necessarily have to like open it up for questions because if you, if you don't feel comfortable with that, if nothing else, they're just getting like a basic starter on like, oh, here's some things that have been happening. Yeah. And I might say, I'm going to say something potentially divisive right here. Mm-hmm. So I taught a, a block schedule and I taught bell to bell for 90 minutes. And now I'm teaching at, um, a school that is traditional schedule and I have classes for 47 minutes. And here's my thing. I think that incorporating five minutes of current events every day or three times a week is more important than students remembering the Chinese dynasties in order, mm-hmm. or is more important than they're remembering anything about the Hundred Years' War. Right. Or whatever, like, whatever really cute and fun hook or warm-up activity you had planned for that day. And I, I get it. Like, I understand that we feel the need to, like, fill every minute of our time with content, because, like, we've, we both have taught tested subjects. Like, I've, I taught AP World History, right? We mm-hmm. both did. Where you do feel like you have no free time, but first of all, kids are not paying attention your entire class period. Correct. They're just not. <gasps> They're not. I know. They're just not. And for me, like, it, you know, I'm really bad at routines. So I'm really bad at, like, I'll say at the beginning of every year, I'm like, I'm going to start with a warm-up question every day and it's going to be a practice. And then I lose it by September. Oh, I lose it by, like, the first week. Yeah. And so if instead, if you just say, like, okay, well, I'm going to start every day with CNN 10 and that's when I'm going to hand out everything, pass back work. That's when I'm going to take role. That's when I'm going to get everyone settled then that is a really, I mean, it would otherwise be downtime where they're just sitting around and chatting. And now they are, maybe they're not paying attention. That's okay. Maybe they're just vicariously, like they're hearing something that later in the day, they'll be like, oh, I think I heard something about something going on in the world. The point is just that like, we're starting, our baseline is zero. Like kids are, kids are, you know, consuming the news zero. So (laughs) anything more than that is good. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, My last thing is when my students are just working independently, I will sometimes just pull up a news site on my projector and like I will just read the news while they're working. Um, And I will intentionally pull up different news sites every time so that they don't see me looking at the same one over and over again. And Look at you getting different perspectives. I know, right? And some kids, if they need a little brain break and they would normally just be zoning out, they'll kind of zone out and like look at my projector. And again, they're just sort of if even if they're not getting the content of what they're seeing on the projector, they're they're watching an adult responsibly consume the news. Yeah, and this again is going back to kind of our our big goal here, which is to normalize current events in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So some other ways that you can do this. So we have some ideas of how you can address skills or content that you're already addressing and just use current events. So. Um, Emily and I both kind of shifted a few years ago away from what we call content-driven instruction Mm -hmm. and towards skill-based instruction. So the idea is 
in world history, for example, we're still teaching the same content, but instead of the focus of the day being some fact, so for example, whereas before the focus of the day would be like the fall of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. now we say the focus of the day is ca cause and effect. Yeah. We're going to teach the skills of cause and effect, and we're going to use the fall of the Roman Empire to teach that. Right. So we're still covering the content, but now our objective is skill-based. So if you're doing that, if you have skills that you know your students need to know how to do, the content is sort of secondary. It doesn't really matter what content you're using if the focus is like, for example, how to analyze documents and write based on documentary evidence. So like a DBQ question. So I have posted here two DBQs that I've actually had students do. They've actually written these DBQs for me when I'm first introducing this idea. And so one, the prompt is identify and explain the impact of social media on American society. And they are given three documents. One is the picture of like the egg yep. that was the most liked photo on Instagram. Mm -hmm. But the little article, one is an article about how Facebook and Twitter are trying to stop election interference. And one is a Twitter conversation between different uh, congressmen who are talking about the Cardi B rant about the government shutdown and whether or not they should retweet Cardi B or whether or not that'd be appropriate. And we had a really awesome and fascinating discussion about what, like, how is American society, American society being impacted by social media? And it got us into some really cool conversations about who has the right to talk about the news? Why was Cardi B seen as less reliable than someone else? That sort of thing. Um, the other prompt I did one time was evaluate the extent to which state-sponsored space exploration differs from privatized space exploration. This got some of my kids, some of my science kids, like real into it. Um, and so again, we're looking at documents that are like the SpaceX business plan or arguments about why we should explore our oceans instead of Mars, that sort of thing. So the point is that if you are just really trying to teach kids a specific skill, Honestly, it's better to not also introduce new content at the same time. Mm -hmm. That is just pedagogically, right, mm -hmm. the better thing to do. If I'm trying to teach them how to write a DBQ, it's distracting if they're also trying to learn new information at the same time. So instead, if you say our focus today is just the DBQ and we're going to use content like that you already are aware of, like Twitter and Cardi B and that sort of thing, it's actually like a better way to teach skills anyway. Yes, you can also delete this later on. But my uh, to what extent how I introduce that in my classroom just for fun is because I teach sophomores is to what extent is getting your driver's license a turning point in your life. Oh, nice. Which I think is really unique because then they have very valid experiences that they can share. But right. I think it'd be fun to do that with to what extent is something about a current event. Yeah. Um, cool. Another thing that you can do is you can use current events to address the skill of like reading and developing or identifying an argument. Um, so if we're trying to teach kids how to write, which hopefully we all are, and we're trying to teach them, okay, here's how you establish your argument, you cite specific evidence, you explain the significance, that sort of thing. You can have them, one of the best ways to teach them how to do that is for them to see how other people do it. So giving them like a news article and having them do what we had y'all do in the lesson, which is like highlight the main argument and circle specific evidence, that sort of thing. Um, that is a really useful tool. If you're trying to teach them how to annotate, why not have them practice annotating with a news article first before they annotate the poem, for example? Mm -hmm. I would love if like the news was told in poem form too. Oh, Wouldn't that be, be amazing? Beautiful. Um, Here's something else we can do for math teachers out there. Now, I'm famously not that great at math, but I do know that a lot of math classes have word problems. My question is, why can't word problems be about current events, right? 
Like, why do they have to be about, like, Johnny had this many apples and then he gave three apples? Like, why can't it be about a current event, right? So I, for example, I put on this presentation a graph that's showing, again, we're going we're gonna to stick with North Korea for some of these examples. Yes. North Korean missile launches and nuclear tests. And it shows different categories. So there's, like, a, there's one color for missile launches that are less than 2,000 kilometers, one for launches that are more. And then there's another, Im- another image on the, it's a line, this is a line graph, right? Sure, that's what that is. We know math. No, it's a column. <laughs> it's a bar graph? Bar graph. I it's feel like bar, that is a correct. bar graph. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> the other one is an image for underground nuclear tests. And so you could, I've asked questions, again, I know nothing about math, but it says, since Kim Jong-un became the leader of North Korea, how many missile launches and nuclear tests have they done? So if you just want students learning how to read a bar graph, which I think that's what this is, they could count <laughs> it. Or you could ask them about change over time. Like, what's the percentage increase from this year to this year? Or what percentage of missile launches were more than 2,000 kilometers? Like, again, you're teaching them the skill of reading a graph. Why can't the graph be about current events? Yeah, and I'd like to argue that not just high school teachers have to do this. Mm-hmm. Granted, I don't know that, like, very young elementary school teachers know what North Korea is or what no, a missile is. the teachers do. The elementary students don't. Yes, that's what I meant, the students. Yeah. But I think that you can still start this at... A younger age. Like, I feel like it would be so wonderful if elementary school teachers or middle school teachers started incorporating, even like math teachers, just more current events into the word problems. Yeah, because I'm even envisioning, for example, a, a chart that's showing like the makeup of Congress, right? Like, what percentage of Congress people are women or what percentage of Congress <gasps> yeah. people are, right? I mean, there's like a lot of ways that you can do this where you're teaching them or th- they could make have to make a pie chart of Congress, right? Mm-hmm. So they could take information in one place and then make it into something else where, okay, you're going to have a pie chart showing women versus men, or you're going to have a pie chart showing um, people with law degrees versus people with, like, that sort of thing. Yes. Right? It doesn't have to be divisive and scary. Emily and I normally go towards really dark stuff. Oh, love the macabre. We always talk about, like, the Black Death, and we're always really excited about medieval torture devices. Mm-hmm. So we obviously, when we were trying to think of an example to show y'all, we were like, North Korea, obviously. <laughs> but we get it that, like, not everyone wants to, like, have their math class be, we don't want pe- kids, like, losing sleep. Right. Exactly. So, um Another way that we can address skills is like through science. So for example, like if you're studying in chemistry class, like you could study like the chemical reactions that occur to create a nuclear explosion, right? And what uh, chemical elements are necessary. So for example, I'm thinking about, um, there was a lesson that we did, um, I saw my students do a project in the Cold War and they were looking at US interventions in the Cold War and one of them was in the Congo. Mm. And the question was, why do we care so much about the Congo? Resources. And it was the resources and it was uranium specifically or plutonium, one or the other. But it was one of the chemical elements that you needed for nuclear weapons. And so we ended up kind of going into this like science realm, right? Um, And so there was like some really good crossover. And I would have loved if I had thought about that in advance to get with the chemistry teacher and say, like, what if the chemistry classes did, like, a, a project that day on, like, figuring out the formula or whatever they need, and then we can talk about why they wanted the Congo. Yeah, and I feel like that's incredible for students to know that, like, that cross-disciplinary teaching is mm-hmm. so good because what they're learning in one class can be supported or it built upon in a different class, and mm-hmm. that really ignites learning. Yeah. Another science question you could ask if you, again, want students to lose sleep is it could be like in a physics class, calculate the distance a current ICBM from North Korea could travel. So they would have to calculate, right, I don't know, I'm thinking of the Monty Python, like what's the airspeed velocity (laughs) of an unladen swallow or whatever. But they would have to calculate different things to figure out, like, okay, if it's launched from Pyongyang, like where could it realistically hit? Um, Again, this is like a scary example. I would love to do that in science class. Mm. So. And Emily, you found this really great resource about image analysis. Yeah, so this is my favorite. Um, so 
what you could do if you don't teach science or math or history and you're like, I still have no idea how I can talk about current events is um, you can just go to a news website or I think there's a, a website that does like the the New York Times does the weekend images or the mm-hmm. weekend pictures. So you could just pull up one of those pictures and then you could do so many things with that. So for example, if you are a theater teacher, you could pull up this picture. Of, we're looking at one right now that is uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and a bunch of other advisors sitting down at a summit. And if you're a theater teacher, you could say, hey, here's the scene, improv, the before, the after, and just go. I love this idea. Yeah. And that is even just like, even if you know nothing about North Korea or the fact that Trump went over there and they had a summit together, um, that is bringing this event into the classroom, even if you don't ever talk about what happened or what the effects of that was. Mm-hmm. Um, for English teachers, you could use that same picture and you could say, hey, as a class, let's come up with a tone word. And then based on this tone word, we could use that as like a spark to write a story, or you could write a story inspired by what you see in the picture. And that could be, uh, that's again encouraging just straight up image analysis. It doesn't even need to be about the people involved in the picture, but maybe like the two different flags in the background or like what is specifically on the table. Like, yeah, how they're, how they're sitting at the table. So they all look, um, well, first of all, it's like, what I'm noticing is it's like all men on either side, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. They're sitting in this really long table with flowers in the middle, Mm -hmm. which is weird to me. I want to know who picked out those flowers. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a bunch of flags in the back. It's like alternating U.S. and North Korean flags. And everyone's looking away. Like everyone's looking as if they're looking at you. Like something is clearly happening to the left of the photographer. So there's a ton to talk about here where it could be like in theater, right? Like improv a scene, what do you think they're looking at? That could be hilarious, mm-hmm. right? Of like, what do you think they're all looking at? Or I would love to improv a scene about the person picking out what flowers to put on the table in the middle. <laughs> I think that'd be hilarious, right? So there's a lot of ways that this could, again, just be a jumping off point for creativity. So. Yeah, and I also like the fact that in this picture, there's one person that is actually looking away from the camera. Mm. And I think like somehow talking about his perspective or like, why is he looking away? And kind of like using that as a launch point too. Mm-hmm. But if you teach any visual art subject, you could just, you know, create this image or any image in a different style based on whatever style of art that you're learning at the time or recreating it from a different perspective. So again, you could like draw this picture from Trump's perspective or from this gentleman who's looking away. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can just incorporate different perspectives. And then any foreign language teacher, I mean, you could just describe what you see in the photo in your foreign language. Or you could write out a conversation between two of the people in the photo. What might they be saying? Yeah, because again, these are all things like I remember doing in Spanish class. I remember like, you know, writing out, you would have to form a conversation between two people. And it was always like, hola, donde esta la biblioteca? Which I remember now you don't speak Spanish. That means, But I know that because of community. Oh, good. It's like, where is the library, yes. right? Um, and so, you know, for like, especially as kids are getting more advanced, right? I mean, you could, this could be a really fun activity where you could even let them pick the current event. You could say, go in the news and find something that's happened in the last week. And I want you to pick two quote unquote characters out of that and like write a conversation between the two. So for example, right? Like it could be, what if, um, and it could be two from two different news stories. So it'd be like, what if Colin Kaepernick got on the phone with Vladimir Putin? What would they talk about? (gasps) Right? I mean, like this is really, when we're talking about like the order of thinking, this is like really high level thinking Mm -hmm. of saying like, um, you know, like what, what would they talk about? What would Putin think about this thing? Like that could be really fascinating. And again, for like storytelling and an English class, um, for like, you know, creating scenes in theater class. I mean, there's just so many opportunities here, especially in the arts. Yeah. And I just got to say, I feel like teachers in general should be using more art in their classroom because of things like this. Like you could use this picture in 8 million different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm now like getting so many ideas. That Mm -hmm. would be really cool. 
Okay, so our key takeaways, right? This has been, I know, kind of like a, a longer episode, but our key takeaways are these three things. The first is to teach the value of perspective. So you can't see it here, but on the slide, there's a strike through of the word bias. We would like to eliminate the word bias from the classroom completely. It is... It has is, it is run its course and it's now useless. Yeah, it just has such a negative connotation that it doesn't get us anywhere. Right. But perspective will get us somewhere. I think so. Number two is that we need to be bringing a variety of news and information sources, and these are both real and fake, into your lessons for students to critically examine. And number three is just use current events in your classroom whenever possible. And we hope that we've given you a lot of ideas. Like, we would be ecstatic if you took one of these ideas back to your classroom, mm -hmm. or two, or all of them, right? Um, but the idea is that I know as social studies teachers, we sometimes feel like and clearly we know that the burden is mostly on us. We yeah. know that our class lends itself to talking about current events and news analysis the most, but it would be wonderful if it wasn't just us. Yeah. Um, and so as much as we can just get the, that information out there and get students to see that like it's a good thing to be aware of what's going on in the world mm -hmm. and that it is helpful to know what's going on in the news, right? That, that, and if they see that, if they see their math teacher looking at the news and they see their science teacher talking about the news, like they're gonna start to realize that being an informed citizen is a good thing. Yeah, and we know that in every other subject, you also have discussions. So you might as well still practice these really productive discussion skills in any way that mm -hmm. you can in science or math class, definitely in English class. Yeah, for sure. So uh, at that point, we will kind of wrap up. I mean, we'll ask the audience if they have any thoughts or questions or experience. But for those of you listening, we just really appreciate you tuning in. We're sorry you couldn't make it to our South by Southwest EDU presentation. Uh, this was sort of our practice run. So we hope it went, I think it went pretty well. Yeah, I think we did a pretty good job. I think it went pretty well, too. I, I think so, too. Um, so anyway, we're really excited. Uh, and if you want to see any of the resources that we presented, you can go to the website, antisocialstudies.org. There is a whole page that is just for all of the resources mentioned and more. So there's um, the actual Google Slides presentation is up there. Every uh, document that we gave to our participants is going to be up there. And also tons of extra resources that we didn't even really get a chance to show will be there. So if you're a teacher or if you're involved in school, please share this with anyone that you think would find it helpful. So uh, thank you, Emily, for being a special guest. Yay. Thanks. And thanks for listening. Bye. All right. How'd we do? Not terrible, I hope. Well, thank you if you stuck it out through this entire almost two hour long podcast. If you're interested in any of the visuals we were referencing, I have posted all of our materials on my website, antisocialstudies.org. You can see our Google Slides presentation. You can see links to all of the actual articles that the participants would have received and much, much more. So please check it out. And again, thank you so much for sticking with me. And I'm excited to share my next episode with you soon on North Korea.